When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. The medical system prides itself on following the Hippocratic Oath, never revealing the secrets of patients. Even in some legal cases, medical records cannot be released without subpoenas or warrants. This has made it possible for psychiatric patients to make threats while in therapy, without worrying their therapist will report the threats to the police or the intended victim. Today, for this episode, we have three cases where victims and their families questioned whether therapists have a duty to warn the public. Okay, on to the show. In 1967, Prozenjit Potter came to the U.S. from India. Prozenjit was a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley, where he studied architecture. Prozenjit was from the lowest of the caste system in India, the untouchables, so it was remarkable that he had won a scholarship to come to California. The caste system in India is based on birth and determines profession, education, and marriage potential. Prasenjit saw his education in America as a way to overcome the limitations he had faced since birth. Prasenjit was quiet and did not have much experience with women, as typically his wife would be picked for him in India. He lived in the international house where most international students resided. In the latter half of 1968, he met Tatiana Tarasov during folk dancing at the international house. Tatiana, called Tanya by her friends, was attending Merritt College in Oakland. She was a daughter of Russian immigrants who had left Russia via China and Brazil. Tanya was born in Shanghai, then the family moved to Brazil. The family came to America around 1963. Tanya was an expert at languages. She wanted to become a teacher and then move back to Brazil. She was very popular and outgoing. After the two met, they saw each other weekly throughout the fall and up to New Year's Eve of 1968. Tanya kissed Prasenjit on New Year's Eve, which led to Prasenjit believing they were in a committed relationship. When Tanya realized this, she told him that she was seeing other men. This devastated Prasenjit, who ignored his studies and his health. He began talking to himself, cried all the time, and told a friend he was going to blow up Tanya's room. When Tanya agreed to meet with him, he recorded their conversation so he could listen later to determine what it was she wanted and what went wrong. He also began stalking her. In the summer of 1969, Tanya went to South America. During this time, one of Prozenjit's friends recommended he seek help for his mental issues. Prozenjit voluntarily entered outpatient therapy at Caldwell Memorial Hospital, 
where he was initially seen by Dr. Stuart Gold, a psychiatrist. He eventually started seeing a staff psychologist, Dr. Lawrence Moore. He was under the care of Dr. Moore on August 18, 1969. During his ninth session, he expressed to Dr. Moore that he was going to kill a girl when she returned from Brazil. On August 20th, Dr. Moore advised campus police officers Everett D. Atkinson and Johnny C. Teal that he felt Prisenjit was a danger to himself and others. On the same day, Dr. Moore wrote a letter to the campus police chief, William Beale, expressing the same concern, but explaining that Prisenjit had paranoid schizophrenic reaction that was acute and severe. He told Chief Beale that if the campus police could take Prisenjit to Herrick Hospital, Dr. Moore would sign the 72-hour emergency detention order. He explained Prisenjit could be very rational and lucid at times. Dr. Gold and Dr. Yandel, the assistant director of the Department of Psychiatry, agreed with Dr. Moore's assessment. However, once campus police officers Gary Browning, Joseph Halloran, and Everett Atkinson detained Prisenjit, they all agreed he was rational and in a different mindset. He promised the officers he would stay away from Tanya and they released him. Shortly thereafter, Dr. Harvey Powelson, the director of psychiatry at Cowell Memorial Hospital, learned of the detainment and the possible 72-hour emergency hold and asked that Chief Beale return Dr. Moore's letter. Dr. Powelson then had Dr. Moore destroy all notes related to Prisenjit and informed the entire staff no additional attempts at emergency holds of Prisenjit would be undertaken. Prisenjit's reaction to all of this was to stop attending therapy altogether. When Tanya returned from Brazil in October, Prisenjit resumed stalking her and was even her brother Alex's roommate in the international house. Tanya's father overheard a phone conversation with Prisenjit and Tanya on October 26, where Prisenjit said, Well, all right, I won't bother you again. However, that was not a promise he kept. On October 27, 1969, Prisenjit went to Tanya's house, where her mother said she wasn't home and told him to leave. Around 5 o'clock, he came back and Tanya answered the door. She wanted him to leave, but he wouldn't go, so she started screaming. He then shot her with a pellet gun, hitting her in the right wrist and in the head. Tanya ran screaming, but Prozenjit gave chase. He quickly caught her and stabbed her repeatedly, as some of her neighbors looked on in horror. Tanya got away again and ran to a neighbor's yard, where she collapsed in the neighbor's arms. Prisenjit went into the Tarasov home and phoned the police. When they arrived, he gave himself up peacefully, and they transported him to an emergency room due to an injury he sustained in the frenzied attack on Tanya. He had a cut tendon in one hand, which was treated, and he was taken to jail. Prisenjit, who was approximately 25 years old at the time, attempted to plead guilty to manslaughter, but was charged with first-degree murder. At trial, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, yet was found guilty of second-degree murder and given a sentence of five years to life. After serving roughly five years, his case was successfully appealed. Instead of retrying Prisenjit, 
Superior Court Judge Harold Hove gave him 20 years probation and deported him back to India. Prisenjit did not show any remorse for killing Tanya, but reportedly told probation officers it was a learning experience about women. He said he would let his father pick his bride. By all accounts, Tanya was intelligent, friendly, and outgoing. Even at her young age, she was considered an expert in languages. An announcement in the journal Hispania was made in September 1966, which listed Tanya as one of the highest-scoring students on the national level for the 1966 American Association of Teachers of Spanish and Portuguese, or the AATSP, which is a national Spanish examination. She was testing in the second year and won some books. In 1973, Tanya's parents, Vitaly and Lydia Tarasov, filed a $200,000 negligence suit against the therapist and University of California, Berkeley. The suit maintained that the defendants should have warned Tanya about the threats made against her, thereby saving her life. The therapist said they were concerned with their duty to their clients, and initially the courts agreed with them. However, in 1976, when the ruling was appealed, the California Supreme Court reversed the decision and issued a landmark decision which has resounded in psychological circles since. Tarasov, too, as it is now known, said if a therapist should determine a patient is a danger to a third party, the therapist has a duty not just to warn, but also to use reasonable care to protect the intended victim. There are some situations where therapists might need to warn police or take whatever other steps are reasonably necessary. This was just the first of some lawsuits filed as a result of murders committed after the murderer confessed to a therapist or official their intent to murder someone. On Tuesday, July 8, 1975, Kimberly McIntosh, a 22-year-old fashion model and beauty queen, was slain after she left her house to go to the drugstore at 6.15 p.m. It was determined she was shot once in the back with a 22 caliber weapon. Meanwhile, her neighbor, 17-year-old Lee Morgenstein, returned to his home and told his father that he had shot Kimberly. Lee and his father then called the police, and Lee led police to Kimberly's body, approximately an hour after her death. The McIntosh family told police Lee had harassed them, shooting pellets at their cars as they drove past and even at their home. Lee had also threatened Kimberly before and also threatened a friend of hers who set Kimberly up on numerous dates. Although there was no sign of a struggle at the scene, Lee explained to police he and Kimberly had argued and he shot her in the back as she ran away. Lee was taken to a juvenile detention center and held before his hearings. He had one hearing in juvenile court on July 11th, but was held over for a second hearing where it was determined he would be tried as an adult. His attorney, Donald Conway, did not oppose this move, stating juvenile court did not offer certain defense, such as an insanity plea. However, his attorney did not want Lee moved out of the juvenile detention center, citing sexual harassment from the female inmates at the minimum security jail. The Superior Court Judge Fred Galda sent Lee to the jail because he was being tried as an adult. It was soon discovered that Lee had been under the care of a psychiatrist, 
allegedly for extreme shyness, not for any psychiatric aberrations. He had been at a session with his psychiatrist just hours before the shooting of Kimberly. Donald spoke with Lee's psychiatrist, who stated Lee was not a threat to society. Based on this, Donald requested bail, although the assistant prosecutor requested a psychiatric evaluation before bail was set. On September 19, 1975, bail was set at $150,000, but the Morgensteins were unable to raise the money for the bail. In January 1965, while awaiting trial, Lee attempted to bribe a witness to not show up to testify. He offered the witness $250, which was the same amount as the fine for failure to appear for a subpoenaed witness. Lee's defense attorney put forth a case that Lee and Kimberly had been lovers since Lee was 15. After Lee told his father he had shot Kimberly and his father asked why, Lee said because he had been tormented for the previous two years. One of the patrolmen who went to the park with Lee the night Kimberly was killed said Lee told him she deserved to be shot. Lee testified in his own defense and explained when he was 15, he and Kimberly were in the park and she asked him if he wanted to undress. He said they did, and they had sex every day that summer, although she asked him to keep their affair a secret. On the day of her death, Lee said he was cleaning his twenty-two pistol in the basement when his mother walked in. Although she knew he had guns, he quickly hid the pistol in his pocket. Shortly after midnight on March 5, 1976, after nine hours of deliberation, Lee was found guilty of first-degree murder. Sentencing was delayed for over a month. A committee of wives in Teaneck filed a petition asking for life for Lee. Their wish was granted when sentencing occurred, and Lee was given a life sentence. Shortly after he was sentenced, Lee was attacked in jail during an attempted sexual assault. He fought back, and charges were filed against his assailants. Although Lee was denied a new trial, his conviction was overturned in 1978 due to misconduct by the prosecutor. It was discovered that the prosecutor on the case had coached witnesses. At Lee's second trial in June 1979, he pled no contest and was sentenced to 21 to 26 years in prison. He was removed from the Yardville Youth and Correctional Facility to the minimum security Jamesburg Reformatory. At this point, he had just over four years of jail and prison time served and was described as a model prisoner. After being incarcerated for six years, Lee was paroled. This occurred after the parole board chairman, Christopher Dietz, decided to submit the case to only two members of the parole board. This was heavily criticized by members of the public and state government. After Lee was found guilty, Kimberly's parents filed a suit against his psychiatrist, Dr. Michael Milano. A New Jersey Superior Court found Dr. Milano liable, using the Tarasoff case as a yardstick. New Jersey then said psychiatrists had a duty to warn when their patients were potentially a threat to others. Aside from being a model and beauty pageant winner, not much is known of Kimberly McIntosh. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. When you buy a new house, you might say, 
Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously. Shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Finding the perfect present for dad is tough, especially if I don't have the luxury of celebrating Father's Day together in person. My dad lives in Austin, so I don't get to travel down there as much as I'd like to, which means that we are going to be missing this Father's Day with him. I know that more than anything, parents cherish spending time with their family. That's why I'm giving my dad the most meaningful gift this year, a chance to connect with loved ones through StoryWorth. StoryWorth is a really fun and meaningful way to engage with family, especially with relatives you might not get to see often. I also plan to do this with my older brother, who's a dad himself, so I can save his stories for his children. This online service helps your loved ones share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. It's the gift of spending time together wherever you live. So how it works is that StoryWorth will email your family member different story prompts and questions you've never thought to ask. Like, what have been some of your life's greatest surprises? And what's one of the riskiest things you've ever done? And my dad has retired from the Army, and my brother is going to be retiring from the Navy, so I know they have crazy stories. Now, reading the weekly stories is fun and makes our family feel close, even if we're not all together. For instance, I can't wait for my kids to learn about my dad's time in Germany while he was serving in the Army. He has a ton of fun and weird stories that he could share. After one year, StoryWorth will compile every answered question and photo you choose to include into a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped for free. My family, I know, will treasure the book forever. So why don't you give your dad the most meaningful gift this year with StoryWorth? You can get started right away without the need for shipping by going to storyworth.com TCFC. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com TCFC. If you are practicing social distancing, which means reducing unnecessary trips out and trying to avoid sold-out grocery stores, then check out Sunbasket. It's a perfect and delicious solution for the times we're living in. With that in mind, I picked out some fun meals and snacks for me and my family to munch on. I'm so excited to get my basket, and I will follow up with what I get when I get it. They make it easy and convenient with everything pre-portioned and ready to prep and cook, which makes my life a thousand times easier. You can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. And Sunbasket facilities have the highest levels of food and employee safety. They are reinforcing strict adherence to their existing standard operating procedures and increasing sanitation frequency in their distribution centers in order to protect you and your family. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com TCFCP and enter promo code TCFCP at checkout. That's sunbasket.com TCFCP and enter promo code TCFCP at checkout for $35 off your order.
one last case in which mental health professionals were called into question. The cases of James Forsman Fisher III, age 17, considered to be a child predator at the time of the crime. In Piedmont, California, while on a 48-hour pass from Alameda County Juvenile Hall, James murdered his next victim, a five-year-old boy. He had told his psychologist and a detective he would murder his next victims so they could not identify him. Yet he was given a pass to return home to a neighborhood full of children, his preferred prey. James had been molesting children in his neighborhood since 1969. He preyed on young boys and girls alike in the neighborhood. And finally, on May 22, 1973, he was taken into custody and held in juvenile hall. In the fall of 1974, he was released on a pass and, once at home, attempted suicide with over-the-counter medications. Over Thanksgiving of that year, he was again released and spoke with one of his former scout friends, asking for sex. When the boy refused, James threatened the boy and his family. On December 6, his probation officer allowed him another pass when James's psychologist, Dr. Arthur Workman, assured the probation officer James was not dangerous. The probation office did not notify the local police department or any of the residents of the neighborhood in accordance with the normal procedures of their office. Unfortunately, on December 7, 1974, at around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Clifford Thompson, a deputy attorney general of California, began looking for his son Jonathan. Jonathan, aged five, had told his father he was going to meet a friend on Palm Drive, which was close to their residence. Clifford went up to San Carlos Avenue, passing the Fisher home, and encountered his wife, Inga, at the tennis courts. She was also looking for Jonathan, after learning he had never made it to his friend's house. With the light rapidly fading, the pair drove and walked the entire neighborhood with no success. Around 6 o'clock p.m., Clifford went to the police, knowing with each passing minute their chance of finding Jonathan safe were reduced. James Fisher was at home with his mother where they ate dinner around 6.30 p.m. The two discussed James entering Merritt College in the fall. Ironically, Merritt College was the school Tanya Tarasov had attended before her brutal murder. Around 7.45 p.m., James knocked on his neighbor's door, asking to borrow a hacksaw. The neighbor, Eugene Vander Zanden, located the saw and handed it to James. Approximately 15 minutes later, James Peterson and Clifford Thompson were both walking on San Carlos Avenue, using flashlights to look for Jonathan. Suddenly, James Peterson shouted, Wait, you bastard! while standing in front of the Fisher home. His flashlight had revealed James Fisher near a tree, with his arm around Jonathan's neck. He had been dragging the small child across the yard. James Fisher dropped Jonathan and took off running. James Peterson gave chase and followed the teen into the backyard. James Fisher pounded on the door, begging his mother to open it. At that time, Clifford Thompson came into the backyard, and James Peterson turned to tell him where he could find his son. James Fisher disappeared while Peterson had his back turned. At 8.02 p.m., law enforcement arrived and immediately handcuffed a delivery boy. 
He was stunned and stood there patiently until other officers arrived and learned who he was. Margaret Fisher explained to the police no one had entered the home through the back door in the last few minutes. The house was searched, and a police sergeant noticed an open second-story window. The police searched for James Fisher all night, and in the morning, around 8.45 a.m., they found him in an 18-inch space behind the Vanderzanden's garage. Jerry Vanderzanden looked outside to see James Fisher being led to the brick patio by police with their guns drawn. Once in custody, James Fisher denied molesting Jonathan. He also said he killed Jonathan because a small boy had followed him into the garage. Thinking of other false allegations being made, James panicked and began to choke the child. Although no evidence of molestation was found during the autopsy, the district attorney and family believed James did molest Jonathan. James pleaded guilty to the murder of Jonathan Thompson, and a trial was held to establish the degree of murder. While sitting in jail awaiting trial, James obtained some Symbionese Liberation Army and the New World Liberation Front literature. After this, on a sheet of paper he wrote, We got your kid, John. You're next. And then put it in an envelope addressed to Clifford Thompson, his victim's father. For the return address, James said, NWLF. A psychiatrist visited James soon after and was shocked to see pictures of young boys and girls on the walls of his cell. The psychiatrist told the judge in the case that James suffered from a genetic disorder called Klinefelter syndrome. With this disorder, his chromosomes had an XXY pattern instead of the usual XY pattern. Men with this disorder tend to develop breast and a retardation in the development of secondary masculine characteristics, which was true of James Fisher. James was eventually sentenced to a life sentence for first-degree murder. But the story wasn't quite over. When Clifford Thompson sued Alameda County for failure to notify the local police of James Fisher's weekend pass, the sexual relationship between Dr. Workman and James was uncovered. Dr. Workman had been James's psychiatrist since 1972 and continued seeing him until the murder of Jonathan Thompson. James said Dr. Workman always took out a deck of pornographic playing cards at the end of each session, and then they played cards. When James was 16, the two took a weekend fishing trip together, where they engaged in sexual acts. They had sex two or three more times with the last encounter two weekends prior to the murder. Dr. Workman denied the allegations, but lost his license. The suit from Clifford Thompson had initially been dismissed by Alameda County Superior Court Judge John P. Sparrow, stating you could not sue the government for acts of negligence in the line of duty. However, an appeal to the First District Court of Appeal reversed this ruling and created a new rule. This new rule said, when a public entity stands in some special relationship to a person whose conduct needs to be controlled, it is under a duty before itself creating a foreseeable peril through such a person not readily discoverable by endangered persons to give reasonable warning of that peril to its foreseeable future. In other words, the probation office should have warned the local police and the neighbors. However, this ruling disturbed probation and parole officials around the state 
as well as district attorneys, who filed friends of the court letters with the court in attempts to have the ruling overturned. They were successful, and the Supreme Court overturned the case, basically stating that it was impossible to warn the public of every release of an offender. The Tarasov case was compared to this case, as it was different. The threats against Tanya Tarasov differed from the threats James Fisher made because of the specificity of them. Prisonjit Podar made fairly specific threats against one girl, even though he did not name her. James Fisher made threats against potential victims without having anyone in mind. Cliff Thompson and his wife Inga moved from their home because they had to drive past the Fisher's house to get to their own. The memories of the death of their small son were too painful and were revisited every time they had to drive down San Carlos Avenue. Jonathan was their firstborn, blonde and happy. He liked to climb trees and play ball. A terribly confused teenager and a victim of a predatory psychologist, James Fisher found himself in prison. He was originally put in protective custody since child molesters are often targeted. He was moved into the general population where he became a sissy or a male prisoner who lived like a woman behind bars. Because of his genetic disorder, he wore a bra-like halter under his clothes. He doted on his old man, a macho inmate who afforded James some protection. His life in prison was relatively peaceful and gave him more freedom than his life outside the prison. He claimed he was not a pedophile, just a homosexual during the late 1960s and early 1970s. His exit from prison went unnoticed, with no mention of it in the news. His status and whereabouts are unknown. The Tarasov ruling has withstood criticisms from those in the medical field and has been the cornerstone of similar rulings in many other states. Today, these unfortunate victims might be forgotten by all but their families and friends. But their deaths brought about changes in the laws of time, which still resound today. Even Thompson v. Alameda County, although overturned due to concern by the probation community, demonstrated that government officials could be sued for negligence. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best sport in the business, Nico, at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.
Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.